Lord God, as you speak to us through your word, please would you increase our faith, further our knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wonder if you've thought much about your legacy. What is it that you hope to leave behind in this life? What impact will your life have on the lives of others? Have you thought about it much? I want you to imagine you're at your funeral. You're in the box, ear pressed against the wall, listening to the eulogy. What will they say about you? It'd be pretty tragic if everyone at your funeral looked blankly at each other and then just shrugged their shoulders and said, I guess I won't really notice they're gone. Wouldn't that be a sad thing to hear? No one wants that. So what impact will your life have? I was reading this week about Bill Gates, who has had a pretty significant impact on this world. He's leaving a huge legacy. I mean, he's one of the richest men on the planet, responsible for putting a personal computer on every desk in every office in the entire world, pretty much. He's changed the way that the world operates. He's responsible for the only two products in the world that have more than a billion people using them. Microsoft Windows and Microsoft Office. But Bill Gates has come out and said all of that is nothing compared to the impact that he'd like to make on this world. Because through his foundation, Bill Gates is hoping to reduce the number of children who die every year by 5 million. That's a legacy, isn't it? That's an impact. Whether he'll do it or not remains to be seen. But what impact would you like to have with your life? What will be your legacy? Well, this morning we're beginning this new series in Paul's letters to his friend Titus, and it's a letter about making an impact, but an even greater impact to what Bill Gates is going to leave. Because in this short three-chapter letter, which we're going to move through rather slowly over the next seven weeks, Paul, the older statesman, is writing to his junior successor Titus, urging him to continue the work that they established together on the island of Crete. This letter comes right at the end of the New Testament period. The first generation of eyewitnesses to Jesus are being promoted to glory. They're being killed. It's the explosive growth of the gospel in the book of Acts. It's settled down a little bit. Churches have been established. The honeymoon period is over for the Christian church. And so now it's time for a new generation of gospel leaders to step up and continue the work. Now, does that sound familiar to anyone here? Because there's actually quite a lot of similarities between this church here in Tawantin and the church in Crete. And I'm not talking about the quote about everyone in Crete being evil brutes and lazy gluttons. I'm not talking about that. Both churches, the church in Crete and our church here, are in a state of transition, aren't they? Both churches planted by influential leaders who have now moved on. Both churches need elders to lead them. You know we've had four elders retire in the past 12 months. 
Are you praying that God would raise up some faithful men to lead us? Both churches have a new young pastor who couldn't possibly fill the shoes of their predecessor. And so if these churches are going to have any chance of surviving and growing, if these churches are going to have any chance of making an impact in their communities with this good news about Jesus, well, they're going to need leaders and members whose own lives have been impacted with the gospel. And that's why Paul wrote this letter. It's a book for a church like ours. It's a book for people like us. And so this morning, we're going to consider just the first four verses of this letter. And as we do that, we're going to see three things that we as a church and we as individuals are going to need if we're going to have an impact for the gospel here in Noosa. If we're going to leave a gospel legacy, we're going to need three things. These are the headings that should have been on your outline. A gospel, a God-focused identity. Sorry. Number one, a God-focused identity. A people-focused priority. And third, a future-focused destiny. A God-focused identity, a people-focused priority, a future-focused destiny. Now we begin with a God-focused identity. Have a look in Titus chapter 1 because Paul begins his letters in much the same way as he always writes. He introduces himself, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He addresses his readers, Titus, my true son in the common faith. And he gives a greeting, grace and peace. But it's what Paul says about himself that I want to draw your attention to. Because like any good teacher, Paul doesn't just spend his letter telling Titus what to do. He leads by example. He shows Titus how he himself has made an impact for Jesus. And we see it first in the surprising way that Paul thinks about himself. Just think about who Paul is for a moment. Think about the things that he could say about himself. He's Paul, the world-renowned church planter. Paul, the man who's probably brought more people to Christ than anyone else on the planet. He's had huge success. He's made a huge impact. But how does he introduce himself? Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, if I were Paul, I would be walking around with my head so high that there would be clouds around my neck. But no, he identifies himself first as a servant. We'll come back to the servant bit because he is an apostle. He's one of only 13 men personally commissioned by the resurrected Jesus to bear witness to him. But the thing I want us to notice is that he calls himself a servant of God. And the NIV translation is actually a little bit soft here uh, because the word here in the Greek, is not the word for a paid worker. It's the word for a slave. He's a slave of God. A slave who has been bought. A slave who is owned. A slave whose every decision and action is directed towards the interests of their master. And so the thing we need to see is that being a slave to God is not something that is unique to Paul. 
If you're a Christian, then this is you. Only Paul can be an apostle, but no, if you're a follower of Jesus, you too are a slave. And that's a wonderful thing. It doesn't sound like a wonderful thing. No one wants to be a slave. But the thing that we must see is that there are only two options for you. You can be a slave of God or you will be a slave to sin. They're the two options. Slave to God or slave to sin. Now you're thinking, I'm not a slave to anyone. I do what I want. That's evidence that you're a slave to sin. Because no one is free outside of Christ. We are all by nature slaves to sin. We're addicts. We're just like the lady who's maxing out her credit card as she spends her 13th hour sitting at the pokey machines. We're just like the ice addict who's now stealing from work to pay for his next hit. We are addicted to sin. Now, you may not be addicted to drugs or alcohol or gambling or porn or anything else that you could really point to. But you are addicted to something. Maybe you're addicted to success. You crave that sense of achievement that comes from being the best at something. Maybe you're addicted to the approval of others and you can't live without it. Maybe you're just addicted to your own comfort. If you say, I'm free because I do whatever I want, I suspect you're addicted to your own comfort. Whatever it is, we're all addicted to something that takes the place of God in our lives. It's that thing that we worship, that thing that we focus on, that thing that we can't do without. And friends, that thing is enslaving you. It owns you, it controls you, and it will destroy you. You can be a slave to sin or you can be a slave to God. Captivated by his goodness. Purchased by the precious blood of Jesus. Owned, directed, controlled by, focused on God and his plans. And it's only through being a slave to God that you'll actually find freedom, which is the irony of it, isn't it? Is that how you see yourself? Would you call yourself a slave? How do you introduce yourself when you meet someone? I guarantee no one says they're a slave. But are you a plumber who also goes to church on Sunday? Are you a wife first, a mother, also a Christian? Are you someone who enjoys fishing and also enjoys being part of a church community? Or are you first and foremost a disciple of Jesus, a slave of God? Someone who belongs to Jesus Christ, body and soul, in life and in death. Do you see how that order matters? If you're first and foremost an employee, first and foremost a wife, a mother, first and foremost anything else, then you're not a slave of God. Friends, the reason Paul's been able to have the impact that he has is because he recognises that his life belongs completely to God. He claims no ownership of his own life himself. 
He's been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. He's enslaved, and that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. If we're going to have any impact in our community, if we as individuals are going to have an impact on people in our lives, we need to share this God-focused identity. First thing we've seen is a God-focused identity. The second thing we need to see is that Paul has a deep concern for people. He has a people-focused priority. Have a look in your Bibles at verse 2. After telling us that he's a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus, Paul now tells us about the people he's trying to impact. And do you see it there? Why has God made him a slave and an apostle? Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to purpose to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. You see, all of his energy is being directed towards the faith and knowledge of people he calls God's elect. Now, if you've kind of grown up in churches like ours, Uh, The idea of election may not be anything new to you. It might be so familiar, it just seems normal. Uh, If you've come from other church backgrounds or or no church background, this will sound really strange to you. But here in this church, we are thoroughly convinced that salvation comes 100% completely from God choosing us and not the other way around. It's all throughout the Bible. In Deuteronomy 7, God tells the nation of Israel, it wasn't because of anything in you that I chose you. You're not special. You're not particularly impressive. It wasn't because of how big your nation was. It was because of my love. It was God that chose them. It's why Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you. It's why Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, That God chose us in him before the creation of the world. He predestined us for adoption. The Bible is unashamedly about God's election, God's choosing. And the reason I'm making such a big impact of this, well, there's three reasons. Firstly, it's just really good news. (laughs) It is really good news that God chose you because you wouldn't have chosen him. If it was up to us, none of us would be here. There's an old hymn. It says, "'Tis not that I did choose thee, for, Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, hadst thou not chosen me." Friends, the doctrine of election is good news for you. Because if God hadn't chosen you, you wouldn't choose him. But the second reason we need to remember the doctrine of election is because it kills our pride. And if we're going to have an impact on our world, we cannot be proud. We cannot be judgmental. We cannot think that we are here because of something that is in us. And that is our temptation, isn't it? If we look at our world and look down on those who are not following Jesus as if We're better than them. As if there's something good in us, we're not going to win them for Christ. 
we're just going to reveal our own hypocrisy. Election kills our pride. But thirdly, the reason we need to remember the doctrine of election is that election motivates our mission. Because the good news is that it's not up to us to convert people to follow Jesus. That Jesus' call to make disciples of all nations would be a crippling command if it was up to us. (laughs) Have you ever tried to convince someone to follow Jesus? It's very, very difficult to do. And if you consider your own life before you follow Jesus, you probably thought the same way about yourself. No one was going to convince you to take up your cross, to deny yourself and follow Jesus. But election shows us that it's not up to us to convince people. It is God's work. He chooses who will belong to him. And so our work is just to deliver the message. The doctrine of election frees us for mission. Well, Paul's ministry is focused on furthering the faith of God's elect, on helping the elect who are not yet believers to put their trust in Jesus, and on helping the elect who are already believers to deepen their trust in Jesus. That's what he's on about. That's what he focuses on. That's what we must focus on too. Paul says his life, his service of God, is directed towards the faith and knowledge of God's elect. He wants people to grow in their faith so that they might trust Jesus more and more each day. He wants them to increase their knowledge of the truth because the truth will lead to godliness. Because when you know the truth about who God is, when you know the truth about what God has done to save sinners, then that knowledge of the truth will result in godliness, or another way of putting that is God-centeredness. It will help you, it will help others become increasingly focused on, obsessed with, satisfied by God. That's what Paul's ministry is about. That's his priority. That's his legacy. And friends, if our church is going to have an impact in this community, it's what we must be focused on too. Furthering the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. But just finally, the last thing we need, to, the last thing we need in order to make an impact with the gospel. It's a future-focused destiny. Because just as Paul's identity is focused on God and his efforts are focused on the faith of the elect, he does all of this with his eyes, not set on this life, but on eternal life. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life. It's the hope of eternity that the unlying God promised before the beginning of time that drives Paul to pour himself out to promote the faith of God's chosen ones. And he does that because in light of eternity, this life is nothing. It's over in a flash. 
One of the things that strikes me as I read the stories of missionaries who have made huge impacts in countries around the world is how loosely they hold on to the things of this world. How loosely they hold on to their own lives. The people who have made great impacts in our world, they see everything is expendable. They hold their money loosely. They hold their safety loosely. Their very lives. They don't feel the need to hold on to them because they have their eyes set not on this life, but on eternity. How good would it be if we as individuals and we as a church could live with that mindset? Not becoming too drawn to the things of our own lives. Not holding too tightly to this life because we know we have something better. Well, friends, I asked you at the beginning what impact you would like to have with your life. What will your legacy be? Maybe you simply want to provide a good life for your kids. Maybe you're just striving to leave this world a little bit better than when you entered it. Maybe you're dreaming big like Bill Gates who wants to rid the world of malaria. All of those things are great. But Titus 1 shows you that you can do something far better. You can do something so significant that, it impacts, that its impacts will be felt forever. Like literally forever. Find your identity in service of God. Make it your priority to further the faith of God's elect. Wake up each morning with the mindset that every moment you have, every breath, every ounce of energy, every dollar is a tool that God has given you to serve him and his people. And not only will you find the joy of living the life that you were made to live, well, you'll also have the incredible privilege of impacting the lives of others forever. Friends, that's our legacy. Let's pray that God would help us to live it. Pray with me. Our Lord God, we are once again astounded by your grace. Please, would you help us to know it, to be shaped by it, with the truth of your calling of us, with the truth of your salvation for us. Move us to have a more God-centered life. We pray that you would help us to each have an identity that is first and foremost in you. Help us to see that we are slaves of God and that's a wonderful privilege to belong to you. Help us to pour ourselves out in service of you and of your people that we might, by our efforts, help to further the faith of your people. In our conversations, help us help others to trust you more. Would you make us a people who are committed to increasing in knowledge that leads to godliness and would you help us to teach others too? And Lord, we ask all of this, not for our own glory, not that people might acknowledge us, 
but that people might acknowledge the name of Jesus. Lord, would you help us to have an impact in this world for your glory? In Jesus' name. Amen.